Welcome to the journey of an esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. there uh, speaking steve this is mitch hampton from journey of anesthete hey mitch that was actually you have perfect timing my little one just went down for the night i knew you were going to say that that's i trust because i tried to plan things according to your specifications 
you know, which we always try to do on, on our show. We try to, you know, accommodate the guest as much as possible. Um, Appreciate it. Give me one second just sure. to uh, put on my head at that. Absolutely. All right. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. I'm going to do a little introduction and, and just basically tell the listeners that um, I think I discovered you because of my love of Hank Le- Levy and Hank Levy's music. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have your own YouTube channel, and you've been posting all of these recordings of his, uh, him and Towson State from the 70s and the 80s, and I think even up to the 90s, early 90s. And I guess uh, audiences might know him best from the movie Whiplash, because he composed the title song of that film uh, that the band in the film plays. And he was associated with Towson State for many years, but you are... Uh, an audio file and an engineer, sound engineering. And so I guess we could start off talking about how you, well, first how you got into doing sound and engineering and your musical background and anything else you want to say off the top of your head. All right. That sounds wonderful. Thank you for that introduction. And yes, you did discover the, uh, we coordinated this through comments on the, on YouTube, yeah. which I, I honestly, I, I never thought that something like this would happen because of my uh, historical archiving. It just so happened to be that uh, some of the materials left in this house, and I'll get to that story uh, very shortly, yeah. uh, was the perfect, the perfect balance between being ultra niche and ultra legendary. Um, so, uh, a a little, a little history about myself. Uh, I'm 35 years old. Uh, I, um, I, I went to Towson. Towson was one of the two colleges I went to. I graduated from Towson in 2008 with a computer and information systems degree. Uh, I, I've done music throughout my life, but never in a professional manner. Okay. So uh, I was in punk bands throughout middle and high school and all the way through uh, college. I was briefly in a ska band in college, which is the closest I've gotten to performing jazz. Uh, And uh, I got into doing audio engineering uh, basically by necessity. Uh, I couldn't afford recording any of my band stuff when I was in high school, so I started tinkering with uh, digital audio workstations. I, I got uh, Cakewalk Sonar 2 was the first one that I ever used, and I used that up until, uh, well, I used Sonar as a, like a product line up until I moved over to Reaper, which I am still currently using for my various uh, audio and capture projects. Uh, um, I've done. Matt, uh, interject a, no, go ahead. here because you're, you're, of course, a lot of our audiences probably are going to know what you're talking about. I'm, I imagine. Um, I, I, I myself, I'm not, an, uh, you know, I'm not a, a far from an expert on any of this. I just, I just play the piano, you know, and compose. But so you're basically talking, I guess, about your, um, the, the, the platforms that you're using to, for, for transfers. Is that transferring? Is that what you're? what you're discussing yeah so um reaper as a software is basically like yeah. um it's an audio workstation okay uh it's used for it's used for doing live captures it's used for doing digital transfers i also use it for podcasting uh some of them yeah. also double as video editors as well that's excellent. I mean, I was just wondering, just because I, you know, I don't know these these things. So you, so I guess the thing I'm I'm wondering, you, so you have a background in music, and you have a, and you were at Towson State, which is a great school. So you, I, I take it you're a native of Maryland, right? So yes, uh, born in Maryland, imported my life from Canada, the oh, farthest wow. impossible place, and just kind of stayed here. Okay, I guess I'm wondering. So I mean, I, everybody has to decide what they're going to focus on. And I guess I'm wondering, you, you know, you have a background rather different than than jazz music, of course. If you're doing punk and ska, that's a that's a very that's a neat, neat niche niche onto itself. But I'm just wondering, when did you get bitten by the audio bug? Was there an experience where you said, you know, I need to do this myself if it's going to be recorded correctly? I'm, I want to do this, or you heard the difference, <laughs> or why it mattered? What was there a couple of formative experiences where you said? 
this is what I want to do, or this is what I want to. Um, oh boy. Uh, first experience, just being a musician. Uh, my dad raised me on like uh, classic rock and, and prog rock. And I believe he bought my first like Casio little home keyboard when I was six years old. And I just yep. used to sit there trying to, I, I can't sight read. I can't read cheap music at all, but I used to sit there listening to music and I learned how to play by ear just through practice. Oh, interesting. So, uh, and then I picked up the guitar and after I, we did one, like the, the band that I was in when I was 14, we did one session in somebody's basement studio, I think for like $150. And I listened to this and I said, you know, I, I, I could probably do better with more time and experience. And of course, it, it took me 20 years to even approach that level, but it happened. Um, it happens, and then uh, it happens over de two decades and if it's 20 years, but that's very interesting. So you were saying, I want to do this. I, I'm hearing this quality is not where I want it to be. Let me learn. Mm. Let me learn how to do it so I could do it for myself and other musicians. Um, yes, uh, mostly for myself. Doing the other musicians came later on, but yeah, you're, you're basically right. That's interesting. Did you ever cross? You're probably too young. Did you ever cross paths with Hank Levy? Probably not. No. Uh, getting back to the the history stuff. So when I went to Towson, I I, I hopped majors six or seven times, and none of them ended up being any sort of performative music. So at that point, I was completely immersed in computers. Uh, my, my day job is working with mainframes. So like, again, antiquated stuff nobody uh, works with, basically. Um, I only learned about the Towson State University or Towson uh, College Jazz Ensemble, as they call it now, uh, because of my most recent house move. Now, this is the story I was alluding to earlier. Okay. Um, so in, in 2014, my wife and I, we just rescued our second dog. We were looking to, you know, get a house that would be good to start a family with. And, it's, and I was already starting to do uh, audio archiving and video archiving at the time. I just, I'm the kind of person that likes to preserve stuff. Even if it's not for me, I know somebody will find it interesting. Right. When... So we looked at this house. We we didn't even go into the room that ended up having all of the materials, but you know we put an offer in. They accepted, and they said they were going to have a yard sale. Okay. You know anything that we wanted, you know we would pay for, and they would just leave in the house, which is you know it's nice. You don't, don't, don't have to worry about moving a sofa. All these, all these great albums from the seventies were in that house. Is that what it, the case that you all these? Oh, it's, it's, it's even better than that. Oh. So I go there, the yard sale has a little side, there's a little gold rack with some 78s, oh. you know, like Frank Sinatra and some other lounge singers and some of the old operas and just a little sheet of paper that says more in basement. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I inherited my dad's 300 vinyl collection after he passed away in 2008. Oh. And I had been, you know, it's all right. It, it's all right. Uh, I feel like I'm continuing his legacy doing this. Oh, wow. uh, you know, I, I've, I've been buying vinyls, just some, you know, one-off printings or stuff that I really wanted to listen to. And I said to the owners, look, I, I can understand you're moving somewhere for retirement. You probably are downsizing. You don't want to have to schlep or even donate this stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll take a look at what you got, but most likely, you know, I'll take your whole collection. And they looked at me very surprised and said, really? We haven't been able to give this stuff away. Interesting. And so I go downstairs, <laughs> the light turns on, and I'm face-to-face -face with 2,000 white-label master-pressing vinyls. Wow. I, and they're like, they tell me that the original owner used to run a studio called Stare Art Recording. And when he passed away, they sold all of his equipment, but nobody, and I mean nobody, wanted the vinyls or the the thousand plus reel to reel master tapes or the like fifteen hundred cassettes that are there. And I said, I'll, I will gladly take it off your hands because I'm looking through it. And you know, you asked me if I was a Maryland native, and, and yeah you know, born and raised, I, I see names that I recognize. I see Franklin High School. I see Pikesville. Oh, I yeah. see Annapolis. I see Dundalk. 
Sure. This guy apparently from the 60s up through like the early 2000s had been going around Maryland recording high school bands, jazz uh, competitions, barbershop competitions. Huh. It's amazing. And it's kind of like a regional kind of like a regional collector archivist. It's um Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's 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 really remarkable to me. I mean I get I mean, one of the things that I liked about that movie Whiplash is I thought, you know, maybe this movie will get people listening to this kind of music on a larger scale. Because I know mm-hmm. it's never been a real popular big band music in general has never been that popular, you know, and certainly not as popular as punk is, I don't think. But or, <laughs> but um, well, you know, you'd be surprised. Uh, you know, so, ballroom dancing again, not as big, but it, it's a niche that has a very, very like firm following. Yeah. And, you know, just just like with big band, you know, it goes through, you know, waves and Whiplash definitely brought a huge wave of people, as you hope, you know, yeah. very interested in jazz. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm just um, I mean, uh, you. I guess we can get to that a little later. I want to talk about some technical things because, you know, recording uh-huh. music, music's not music. I mean, I guess you have to, I mean, there's specificity about recording a big band, the brass section reads, as opposed to recording a rhythm section or a rock band. Um, Did Mm -hmm. you want to discuss at some point, because your stuff comes out, is coming out really well. Uh, What? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I can definitely give you some details um, once we're done going through the whole history of it. Absolutely. Well, keep going. So what do you, you're saying no one wants this stuff, but you want it. So then what's the next Yeah, I said, I, I actually said, because I, I felt bad, I said, I'll give you $100 for all of it. And, you know, I, and there, done deal. You know, I, I came, we started moving in, and I start sorting through the stuff. I want to take any retail vinyls and put them into my collection. And I want to set all the master pressings on the side. You know, because not only am I interested in getting transfers of these eventually, but I also yeah. want to contact these schools. Oh, yeah, because I'm too. pretty sure they don't even know that these exist anymore. Well, I would imagine the high schools, especially if there was a band competition, probably want a documentation of that if they don't have it, right? Or they, I don't. Did you? Would you find absolutely, that? or or a copy, or anything like yeah. that? Yeah. The, so that's a, one of my eventual goals is to do that. Yeah. But as I'm sorting through the vinyls, uh, my eyes catch glint of Towson. And I'm immediately because I I loved Towson University. I was there for three years. Oh, I I adored the campus. I adored the uh, the teachers. I adored the everything about it was great, especially its location, because you're in the city, but you're not in a city that feels crowded and cramped like how College Park is. Yeah, that's true. So I mean, um, it's a so I I, school. I mean, I you know, again, I'm not I'm not from Maryland. I'm not. But I, I, I agree with you. It's a you know, you can, I speak highly of yes, yeah. and absolutely, absolutely. But um, definitely. So, yeah. I, I I see the Towson Jazz Ensemble. The first one I look at is the 1979, and uh, my breath is taken away because it is still shrink wrapped. Yep. I guess it, it, it has never been opened and never been yeah. played. That's a great year because that's a year of coming on strong, right? That chart and. Uh, I guess I guess it's the Latin chart, ninety degrees Celsius, or is that, or is that? I don't know. I don't. Know. I believe ninety degrees Celsius was seventy six. I was uh, seventy nine. Was uh, per, that was Probe XPD? Pro- That's the one that had Whiplash on it. Whiplash is on it. That's right. Which we're going yes. to introduce. So it's Probe XPD. I remember you. Chain Reaction. The Don Ellis chart. Yep. Uh, there'll never be another you. The long-awaited return of Mister Sun and Whiplash. And that album was also interesting because it's a direct-to-disc. They they did each side in a single run. They there was no editing after the fact. You might be interested to know I have a, a Dave Brubeck direct-to-disc with his family. From that same oh, that's year. fantastic. I think it's from that same year. Seventy, we're seventy, we're nineteen seventy and seventy nine. Big years for directed desk experiments in general. I mean, was the kind of they they were at the time. The engineers were touting how it was much better because as you go from equipment to equipment, uh, especially with the uh, the way the power grid was at the time, every time you jumped equipment, like from the mixer to the board to the uh, to the tape, to the vinyl, 
uh, you add noise to it. So they were touting direct-to-disc because the surface noise was exponentially lower if you went directly to disc and bypassed the tape entirely. Would you would you say it's a forerunner to digital or no? Is it a is there is there no, no? I would say it's more like beta, where it was an interesting experiment that technically had better quality, but the drawbacks to it were just too great. Yeah, I guess that's why it didn't last. Similar to beta, right? Or didn't take off. Take yeah, correct. It, I think direct to disc was only big for four or five years. Yeah. But um, so that so I I opened the vinyl is, is a fantastic album, mm-hmm. and that year of those those that band that you're talking about, Probe, the Funk Tune, and the the Chain Reaction. That, those, oh yeah, that's a great album. So, but you had a shrink shrink wrap. So when so when you first heard it, um, it must have blown I, your mind. I was astounded. Right? I I had dabbled in listening to jazz ever since I stopped actively playing punk. So you know, I I am not the kind of person that will. It, like eschew an entire genre because some, you know you know country radio is not the same as actual country music the same way as like sure. you know radio jazz may not necessarily be the same as what you know is really representative of the genre so right. yeah i like jazz I, I was okay with it and i'm listening to it I'm like this can't be college kids this sounds way too good to be college kid. Yeah, but they isn't that amazing? It's like yeah, it's it's like um Yeah, it was it, and I I figured at that point, you know what, I I need to see if somebody else has this or if there's like a CD release of it or something, and I go online and there there's no YouTube, there's no like there's no anywhere like an upload for this at all. So I, I say to myself, you know, why not? I'll I'll go ahead because I'd love to share this stuff. I love I'm a champion, not of the, not just of the underdog, but of the underrepresented. Absolutely. So this is great. I want people to hear more of it. I upload it. Yeah. You uploaded it, and um... oh yeah, I uploaded it, and I, I, I drifted away for a little bit. I did the seventy six, seventy nine, and eighty five albums, I believe, and then just I got distracted by real life. I come back a little while later, and. Why are there so many views for these videos? Why does Whiplash have so many thousands? Oh, there's a movie out that has Whiplash in the name and the song. It just, it was, I feel like I won the audiophile lottery with how lucky that series of events was. Yeah. It's interesting. So Um, all of a sudden you have all these views and that's, that's good for the music and that's good for your channel, of course. uh, So you must have been really overjoyed. At that. Oh, I was overjoyed because people were enjoying it. And yeah. when when stuff like that happens, it pushes me to be like, all right, well, how about I try and get all of the Towson vinyls and then start working on the rest of the collection? Because I know for a fact that there's stuff in here that, you know, um, yes, there's like a retirement dinner for some principal in 1966. Maybe a few people might find that interesting. Yeah. But I also know for a fact that there are, 18 years of the Chesapeake Jazz Festival, a now defunct uh, high school jazz festival run uh, out of Edgewood High for a number of years that Sarah recorded the masters for. And I'm sure tons of people would love to hear live performances of the Towson Jazz Ensemble, amongst other things, that have never been put anywhere. Yeah, also depending on who the artists were. You know, if they were guest artists, it yeah, been, it could have been you know Clark Terry or Louis Belson or somebody or you know. Um, yep, and I'm hoping that yeah. some of these come with notes, but a lot of it is unfortunately very sparse. The yeah. the engineer kept enough to keep things organized, not necessarily enough to reprint or recreate like the materials that go into the pressings. But you know. I, well, I'll get to that eventually, but just seeing how many people were cherishing stuff that was so obscure yeah. really hit home for me. And that's what pushed me to go on that. You know, I, I bought the last copy that I could find of Hank Levy's documentary yeah, and uploaded that. that just just to make sure that I everything is in one place because it doesn't look like Towson. I tried contacting them a couple of years ago, yeah. seeing if they were interested in helping me with these real-to-real transfers, yeah. 
and I I never got a call back. Huh. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's okay. It, it gets lost in the bureaucracy of a college. I'm sure they're more yeah. they're way more interested in caring about their students. I'm glad you posted that movie because I'd never seen that documentary before. And I think that's from the. I'd never heard of it either. Yeah, I think it's from 1999. It looks 90s to me, right? Late 90s. It is. It, it was a 99 or 2000 copyright, uh, and I didn't even know it existed. But yeah. when you go through those vinyls, you read like something what Hank writes, but Hank writes almost entirely about the music. He doesn't write about, uh, you know, hit his like inspiration or anything like that. I wanted to hear the man speak. Yeah. It's amazing. And boy, was I, I was blown away by that documentary. He is so humble. Yeah, he is. He is. Well, you know, he came up in the fifties and sixties and forties. So those, you know, he's very, that's kind of his, his roots, you know, his generation. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, it's it's nice to see Peter Erskine in that documentary and Milch Oliviev, the pianist, and some nice uh, nice things in that film. Um, oh yeah, and, and for me, the highlight was just anytime I get to hear Maynard Ferguson talk about anybody, he he has this enthusiasm about it that I find yeah. infectious. Yeah, Maynard was a, was was one of a kind. Yeah, especially I guess for brass players. Brass players, I think, yeah. have, a, have a fondness, especially for, for Maynard. Maynard. Um, so, so I'm wondering, you know, if you if you have all this material, what is it that other other folks don't get right about recording big band? That's sort of off, I, you know, that is more of a. So I can't speak too much to that because the reels that I have. Uh, when recordings were done, uh, most of these recordings, they're done in one of two ways. They're either recorded on a single reel with two or four channels. And all of the, all of the mics, all of the instruments are pre-mixed on a much larger board of 16, 24, 32 channels, and then condensed down to either just two or four channels. So the stuff that I am converting is like a singular mono or stereo or front back or like, or four channel. So I don't have, uh, too much insight into what goes into recording those. That would be more like for the the engineer that actually recorded those, as opposed to me sure, but transferring I, I guess, them. I guess the style is what the general style of the seventies was or that era. What you know, the things you just mm-hmm. but, but what you know, there's a way to transfer things properly. And I guess you, yes. you know, you you I can hear that you know what to what to do or how to do that. Now, is it is it, is it mainly the same? Is it does it matter the instrumentation? Are there things you have to tweak, depending on the instrumentation? Is that it, not an is, issue so much? Instrumentation is normally not a problem. Uh, the The goal with this with archiving is not necessarily to make it more listenable at first. The goal is to preserve as much of the original information, the original data as as you possibly can. So when I do this, I ended up buying uh, the specific model of reel to reel that I use as a Teak, T-E-A-C, A3340S, which is a four channel, seven inch reel to reel player. Wow. And so that's that's definitely an analog technology, right? That's a, that's a, right. It is. That, that is very much an analog. In fact, when I bought this one, the description of the product was uh, the the second VU meter doesn't work unless you tap it a little bit. And you know you're dealing with analog technology if it works yeah. if you tap it a little bit. Yeah. Um, that, but what's really important about this is, as opposed to other four-channel reel-to-reels, this one has an output for every channel. I get all of them separate. I don't have to worry about any kind of mixing done on the reel-to-reel deck as it is. It's all taken in post. So I'm running that Peak A3340S into a Focusrite Scarlett 18i8. Now, this is uh, an audio interface that I bought a while ago because I also do a podcast, and I've been podcasting for about 10 years. And in order to mix that, I got this because there was a point where we recorded together 
And this has four mic channels with preamps and also four uh, analog channels or um, like direct channels that are non uh, preamped in the back. Yep. Those four channels are what are being used going directly from the reel-to-reel deck into four channels, and that gets sent directly to Reaper with a separate track for each channel. So I only have to play it once. I get all four channels at that. There's no mixing that needs to be done, and if any of those tracks are not used, then I can remove them afterwards after confirming there's nothing on them. Okay. So your your perspective so the, first we have to preserve this so it doesn't get lost to history or doesn't yes. you know disappear. Yeah. And so in that sense you're performing I guess a public service you know in general. I, you know non I I try to. Yeah. And, but let me just detail real fast some of the some of the issues that historical archivists and especially audio archivists have to deal with. Okay. Uh, the most notorious of which is known as sticky shed syndrome. Uh, in the 70s and uh, throughout the 80s, Ampex changed their non-acetate tape formula to a different chemical composition. And unfortunately, those chemicals over time, the, the chemical is used to stick the oxide layer, the stuff that actually contains the information, onto the little plastic, like the mylar strip that the reel-to-reel is. Yeah. Uh, If it's kept anywhere that has any sort of humidity or any sort of heat, over time that compound breaks down and it will start to turn to almost like a tar substance. Yeah. Uh, And it's known as sticky shed because a lot of these people running studios would keep them in their shed and they'd take them out and suddenly their hands are all like sticky and gross. Mm. Uh, I've already encountered a few of them like that. Now there is a solution for it. Uh, And unfortunately you can't play a tape that has sticky shed. You'll put it through and not only will it start to slow down like the motors, you have the potential for burning out your tape deck, Mm. but you also all, when that sticky material goes through the reed heads, you just hear the machine starts screaming at you through the the pickups so you can't even preserve it the solution yep. is to bake and <laughs> I, I hate having to say this, but you actually have to bake the tapes at like 130 degrees fahrenheit exactly for up to eight hours wow so you've done that so you've salvaged tapes through doing that i i, I presume right Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a temporary solution. NPR actually did a wonderful article about it, I think, nine years ago. I'll have to send you a link for it. Okay. But as soon as you do that, it makes the tape like new again. The the chemicals rebond. That's basically their melting point. So they will liquefy and then rebond, and you don't lose any of the information that's on there. However, after a couple days to a couple weeks, it breaks down again, and you can't really repeat the process multiple times, so you you bake the tape, and as soon as it's cool, as soon as it's cool enough to put in the deck, you better believe that it's important, it's more important than anything to get that thing converted, otherwise you definitely will lose more data the next time around. Yep. So, yes, I, I, I have definitely salvaged a few tapes that way. I guess it's a race against time. It's also scientific. It's mm-hmm. science, and it's also like cooking, I guess. It's a culinary. <laughs> I, I have a uh, Kosori dehydrator oven, which I've been using to, like, make homemade beef jerky. And it just so happens that that thing can be set to 130 degrees Fahrenheit for eight hours. It doesn't smell nearly as good. But it gets the job done. And, yeah, it is a race against time. Like the acetate tapes also end up having – you can get acidity bleeding through, and the tape can start to disintegrate. So, um, you know, the sooner I get these things converted and I'm up to – I've only had the reel-to-reel deck for about two weeks now. It was a recent purchase, and I. it's only because I got the funds for it. It was like almost, I think, $900. Oh. Uh, yep. And again, like you said, it's a public service. I'm not doing this because I want people to pay me for it. I'm doing this because the stuff deserves to be preserved. I'm on reel 24 out of 890. 
Okay. So my goal is to have it done by the end of the year. Get, you know, six to ten tapes done a day. I should be well clear by the end of the year. And I do plan to upload those to the YouTube as well, not just for preservation, but because I want people to help me identify these things. I would like to know, what song is this? Do you know who the original composer is? Do you know who's performing this? Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, yeah, that was kind of helpful. You sent me this this chart that's actually a Don Menza chart. Uh, it's not a Hank yeah. Levy chart, but Hank Levy was performing it, right, by Dodd. It's the, the San yeah. Andreas uh, Samba. I think it's called. Um, yeah, that's a classic. I've, I've played that piece. That's a that's a popular, popular uh, big band chart that Louis Belson band used to right. play in the seventies. I was wondering, um, what's an example it, it, that comes to mind of a of a, a it, you do both audio and visual, right? What's yes. What's an example of something that was really would have been you know really sad. Or would have really upset a, a party or a person if it were lost that you salvage for somebody? It could be an institution, a family. What? What? It could be, I don't know, some kind of, I don't know, whatever comes to mind, something that. So I, I actually have two examples for this. The first was uh, a, a family member of mine posed that this is less transfer and more restoration. And I can go back to talking about restoration since we did go through the whole, you know, the first step is preservation. Then we can talk about salvaging and, and, and making it better. Um, a family member posted on Facebook a cassette interview with my great-grandfather. And it was, it, I had never heard it before, but there's a lot of noise, a lot of warble, stuff that could have been cleaned up. And I said, you know, give me, give me the file for it. Okay. Let me see what I can do because throughout all I've done, you know, I've done music performing, I've done music composition. I actually I've composed film scores for a couple of movies. Uh, I do the audio restoration. I've done video restoration. Uh, and doing audio restoration is very interesting because you have to tread the line between making it sound better and maintaining that original aesthetic that it has. So, you know, being able to make it so that they could actually understand the words that were, right. you know, said in the interview sure. while still maintaining the timbre of my great-grandfather's voice, voice. that is something that I'm, I'm very happy that I did. The other one is something that's coming up. Uh, one of my good friends from college uh, saw my setup and said, I'm going to bring a cassette tape over to you. It's already dying a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to help me convert it. It's me as like a seven-year-old interviewing my grandmother. Wow. And I, it is those kinds of things. Like I, I've offered it to friends. If you have camcorder tapes of like somebody's wedding or bar mitzvah yeah. or, or, you know, whatever, you know, let me know because I would like for you to preserve that. You know, camcorders are no longer really being manufactured. Of course. Uh, and all, yeah, yeah all, all of these memories are going to that. They stopped making like VHSs, sure. you know, and VCRs, sure. I think like five years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I don't like the idea of those things dying. You know, you wanted good examples of stuff that would be very disappointing to a particular person if it weren't salvaged. Yeah. But like the, the, for anybody who is listening to this, you know, reach out to people. Just ask, like, go, go through your stuff. Say, I've got these micro cassettes of interviews I did or I've got these. I've got these camcorder tapes of my kids graduation from elementary school. Get that stuff preserved. Yeah, it's important. I mean, a discussion I often have with some of my friends, and this relates very much to my podcast, because this is, after all, an arts podcast, is um, on the one hand, people feel that a lot of content, for lack of a better word or formulation, is being is available now in a way that it's never been before. And so there's an upside. Mm-hmm. People think, oh, there's these obscure movies are more accessible whether it be 16 millimeter movies, studio movies, indie movies, 
tele- old television. So in a way, there's a renewed interest um, in some of this content, right? On the other yeah. hand, on the other hand, never before has so much been lost and hard to access at the same time. It's an interesting when you say it's an interesting time right now because you have because you have so much new product that makes it sometimes harder to get a hold of certain old things, particularly if there's licensing debates or you know if, say if a film had a song that is being held up by Warner Brothers or Sony or a big company and won't release it. Yep. You know these kind of. Yeah. Have you run into some of these struggles of trying to salvage something, a film or TV thing, or does you know? Well, I mean, like uh, you, you you found you found me through the the YouTube channel for Sarah Art Legacy. Yes. I, through, throughout those uploads, YouTube does check to see whether or not there is like licensed content on there. Whether and it's not even just the performances that are licensed. Yeah. They, it will check melodically and say this melody, this composition's melody is being used from X time to X time in your video. Right. Like um, the, a time, time for Change, which is the final, the seventh song on the 1976 House and University. Um, yeah. You know, that's a Hank Levy composition. Yep. However, I, I got to notice that there's a copyright claimant. They will allow me to keep the video up, but they will put ads on it and I will receive, you know, I'm not eligible to receiving revenue. I'm personally okay with that. Yeah. However, I, it, it's frustrating to me because when somebody wants to go to, to get that stuff, this is a, this is a university performing jazz it, you know, blessed by the person who wrote the composition. There shouldn't be any strings attached. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so it's, it, it is frustrating for me. It's very frustrating, but I mean, I'm sure... So that's a, that's a sonic example or audio example. What's an example of a film thing where you came up in, with a struggle of trying to salvage this, but there was a, a third party that said, you know, well, we want this, or it didn't wasn't helpful. Has there ever been times when you were kind of at a project I'm, I'm sure something comes to mind where um well i mean i i've done far more audio than video so that hasn't come up for me just yet yeah uh, i dread the day i absolutely dread the day uh-huh. but no matter what happens like so yes youtube can say you know this is copyright you yeah. you you know you can't have it on there or we're going to monetize it and you can't do anything about it one of the best things that I that I can recommend to anybody who's looking for stuff, go to places like archive.org. Every single album that I've been uploading to YouTube, I've also uploaded to archive.org in entirely lossless quality with high-resolution version pictures of the albums that you can download for free. Yeah. Archive.org is meant to be a preservation place, and most of the things that get copyright dinged on YouTube – Unless it's something very egregious, like you uploading the new Avengers movie there, sure, it will stay. It'll stay. So they they have one of yeah, the I, they have a lot of fair use in play. One of the things I appreciate about you is that you upload the artwork, the seventies artwork of these albums, which is fantastic. You can see the the hairdos and things of the of the guys <laughs> in the band, and I really appreciate that. And the names, I mean, there's so many. I really appreciate that because there's so many people that are uploading stuff in a very um, irresponsible way, not not telling when things were made or putting the wrong date. You know, there's we're watching <laughs> that, particularly like HBO is the worst offender in Netflix, right? Because they will, oh, yeah. they will put up, you know, classic movies. They'll put up a movie from 1984 and not even say, not even put 1984. They'll just put the date they uploaded it. So it'll be 2019. <laughs> you know, and they won't. Right. There's a lot of that kind of stuff, right? So they don't. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. So one, one of the most, like, uh, for going back to the Whiplash video, one of the biggest, most repetitive comments was, who's the personnel list? Upload the personnel list. Yeah. The, that artwork stuff came out half out of, you know, archiving, but also half out of, to be honest, sheer laziness because goodness, do I not want to have to type up all of these names? (laughs) I'd rather just get the material. It's like, I only have so much time, so I would much rather spend my time transferring and preserving the material than typing up the information. But you're right, it's so so important. So, yeah, I've typed up and, you know, moved over some of that stuff to the YouTubes because it's 
it is very important. But getting the artwork there, that solves the problem both ways. Number one, you can see the packaging and see everything that was done, you know, even the typos. Preserving the typos is one of those things that I love. That's your, I love that's seeing where the little mistakes are. So that's a philosophy that you have is, is um, you mentioned two things at the outset of our show. You mentioned the underdog and you mentioned the underrepresented. Could, uh, what, what comes to mind? Could that be a town or a city or a certain kind of music or something that's, uh, that, you, that you feel you, you helped represent that was un, 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 unrepresented, previously unrepresented? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so um, there, uh, again, a little bit of history. I met my now wife through a, uh, a video game music arrangements community called Overclocked Remix, okay. where basically they will take video game songs and rearrange them in different genres, different styles. There's, it's a balance of interpretation and rearrangement. So um, I've, I've done a number of arrangements on there, and they have a very active community of people who appreciate it and also just, you know, like the chit-chat. Right. And I met her at uh, – they have conventions. They have festivals now that are dedicated not just to video game music but to video game music arrangement bands. There's a very specific one right. that's annual called MAGFest, the Music and Gaming Festival. Right. Uh, you know, you know, people think back to like the original Nintendo in the 80s and Super Nintendo and they think, oh, it's just bleeps and bloops. There are some outstanding – and not just because they're good compositions, but because they're good compositions on a very limited platform. You know, you got two square waves, a triangle wave, a sine wave, a noise channel, and a single digital channel. And, and that's all you got to work with for an entire song. Yeah. And so I've been championing video game music for many, many years. And it has now, it has almost to the point, it just massively expanded. Uh, there are multiple festivals now that are dedicated to it. You know, there's video game music in the Library of Congress, if I remember correctly. Uh -huh. uh, there's vinyl repressings of these now that are coming out all the time. Uh, so that 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 to me represents the underdog because you think video games, you do not immediately think music that deserves to be recognized in its own right. Yeah. Well, video games, yeah, video game music is a field that I guess you you probably know fairly well. I mean, imagine you you've composed for, have you composed for video games or only film, or both? Uh, only only film, but uh, as such. Uh, as such a lover of video games just throughout my life, I've done a lot of arrangements from it. I've yeah. you know, told people, you know, these are some good soundtracks that you might be interested in because the genres that exist in regular music, there's representation for all of that in video games. You know, you talk about jazz, there's, there's a lot of jazz. there is a very obscure Japanese only Nintendo DS, which was a handheld video game called Bartender DS, where the, the entire game was just teaching you how to make drinks. Wow. And it has, I, I've never been able to find the composer because it's entirely in Japanese. I've been still trying to get more information on it. Okay. But it has like 12 songs of jazz that, that's just, it's perfect lounge music. And I've never heard these songs before. So I... I want that person to get recognition, and I tell people about it. Like, yeah. you want to hear cool music that is extremely obscure? If you like jazz, you know, listen to Bartender DS. Bartender DS. Uh, but no, I haven't composed for video games. I imagine that was probably composed in Japan, right? If it's from Japan, I imagine. I, I, I don't know. That's the thing. I have no idea. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the, the information on this is so important to not just preserve, but to discover. You've, you've done a number of things, as you said, of grandparents and great-grandparents, your family and others. Are there things that, uh, that you notice in terms of the differences or changes of the way people speak? Or language, or things like <laughs> what comes come to your mind, or things that, that you you know very well. Oh, that's something I don't hear anymore. That's something that. <laughs> oh man! So again, going back to some of these recordings, like a lot of this stuff is from like the '60s. So yeah, 
there, there was a lot more uh, open religious involvement in one's community in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And so a, a lot of the stuff that's being communicated, uh, it, it feels very, what's the term? I want to say Pleasantville, but I, that, that's a movie that that's doesn't really movie. fully. Uh, that's a great yeah. movie from the 90s. Uh, it, it, yeah. Oh, I, I I love it. It it is it is a fantastic film. But like that, it's exactly that. It's like uh, like gosh darn it, or Gee Willikers, or like so you've heard you know, actually people say that you but you've had because of someone said Gee Willikers or, or said these kinds of things. Literally earlier today, yeah, I was mentioning the retire the retirement audio that I was converting. I just yeah. converted that a few hours ago. And as part of the principal's retirement, they had a barbershop quartet. And the barbershop quartet was performing uh, Goodbye, My Coney Island Baby. And there's a little part in there near the end. It's like, goodbye, farewell. And then one of the other members will sing something like, uh, you know, just saying goodbye in another language. And the third barbershop quartet person said, Asa la visa, and the crowd just erupts. This apparently was considered high comedy at the time. Yeah, this is this is from 1966, and that just floored sure. me. That this is this is what we, you know, 30 years before Arnold Schwarzenegger made it a mainstay because of Terminator 2. There's Asa la visa getting the entire crowd rioting. Yeah, well, I mean, these things are just. I guess they're partly regional, maybe, or they're partly. Partly the era, right? You no, know, of course we're living in an era now. Yeah. Have you have you felt in the during the time of lockdown and COVID, has there been both opportunities and challenges in terms of preservation or transfers? As have, have 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 you been you're laughing? Have you been doing more transfers than usual, or there's more? Uh, I'm laughing because in. If the situation were any different, I would already be done with all of this. They would be uploaded and cataloged. Yeah. My wife was six months pregnant when when Maryland hit lockdown. So any hopes that I possibly could have had yeah. for preservation were just kind of whisked away. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's proving more difficult for archivers to do yeah. that stuff during the pandemic because libraries are closed. You, sorry, I knocked something over on my desk. But like libraries are closed. The, it, people aren't having garage sales as often. People aren't having estate sales because of the pandemic. So, it, it, you know, that stuff is more often than not just usually thrown away. So we are losing massive amounts of material or we already have lost. Massive amounts of material. Interesting. Uh, it, it's great if you've already got the material to work on, but it, you know, for as many strides forward as we've made, I say we as a collectively archivists as a group, because you know we don't all necessarily talk to each other, but we're all doing the same work. Uh, you know, we're getting this stuff done, mm-hmm. but it, it it kills me. Like it kills me personally, mm-hmm. just to think about. How many things are now lost again, or or will remain forever lost? It, huh. it it's heartbreaking. Now that you know some states are coming out of it, like they're. I went to visit my mom over the weekend. She lives about fifteen minutes away from me, and one of our neighbors was having a, a usual yard sale, masks on and distance, of course. That's great. But that 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 gives me hope that uh, that this. This big gap of when material is just thrown away mostly is almost done. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, really hope that, you know, instead of throwing these things away, a lot of people have said to themselves, I'll just hold on to it until I can, I can marry Tondo this, you know, I can just downsize and and make it all better. Sure. Um, but we, we won't, we, we will never know. And I know that this, this summer is going to be a very busy one for archivists because they have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. So you're going to have your, your work cut out for you, which is good, I guess. In some, in some sense, I, yep. you have big ears. So when you hear something, <laughs> I, know that, I know that you said that, um, that it's important to preserve the thing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you you certainly have a sensitivity to sound. So when you hear something new that's archival, what's the first thing that you notice when you hear it? Can you hear how it was recorded uh, just from hearing it or you hear 
What are details? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I can tell you whether or not it was a condenser mic or a dynamic or whether or not it's a, it's a room mic or if it's direct. You know, some of these recordings have multiple, like, room representations. You've got, like, a front and a back or a left and right. Uh, especially with these jazz festivals, you, you know, you've got 16, 20 microphones pushed into two, three, four channels. You're going to have to figure out a way to prioritize them so that when you do the the mastering and the EQ and all of the effects in, in post, you're not going to be sacrificing any of the fidelity. So, yeah, I can... But that's also from experience is just, you know, listening and saying, oh, this sounds like when I did X and recorded at like a church nearby. Um, There are technical courses that are taught on how to do those things and they give you real world examples. And for most people, that would be how they would tell. For me, it's just from the fact that I, I, I have very good spot memory for, you know, this amount of reverb suggests this location of the microphone Uh, and and before i forget uh you going back to the transfer stuff real fast did you want me to go over the actual like hardware stuff and then uh talk about how to make it sound better or did we want to talk about that a little bit i mean we're getting close uh you know towards uh sort of ending it um of the of the episode, but I'm you know I can certainly open it up if you want to talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll talk briefly about it. I don't I do tend to ramble, uh, but I'll talk briefly. So for transferring materials audio wise, if you're interested in the matter, getting stuff recorded at 96 kilohertz and 24 or 32 bit, like if you're doing uncompressed. 32-bit is the best, and 24-bit if you're doing something like FLAC, the free lossless audio codec, because with vinyl and with tape, you're not just recording what's on there. You're also recording the sound of the machine. Vinyl has a warmth because it's a physical medium. The tape has a hum because it's got amps that are trying to convert the, the magnetic stuff into sound. So you're not just capturing what's on there. You're capturing what it's what it's baked into. Mm. Um, now, unfortunately that does require a lot of storage space, mm-hmm. but when you're doing archiving, that's usually the least of your concerns. Mm-hmm. Now with making things sound better, it depends on what you're working with. A lot of the material I have is like performances. So that kind of limits what I'm able to do in post. But the, the best thing about getting this stuff converted 60 years later yep. is that technology has far progressed in terms of what you're able to do with uh, mastering and EQ and reverb uh, attunement. I believe that's the term. Yes. Uh, it, so I, I do get the raw transfers, and then I'll apply something like isotope ozone or um, Accusonis uh ERA4 in order to reduce the reverb and then adding a better reverb to it. Um, but th- that's all I wanted to, sh- to say. Um, I'll give my contact information at the end if anybody has any questions about this. I, please feel free to email me. You could do that. You could do that right now that you brought it up. Uh, absolutely. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, just uh, if, you know, uh, I'm Share Art Recording Legacy on YouTube. If you have any questions about how I'm doing this or are interested in learning about uh, audio or video historical archiving, send an email to S-T-E-V-O-S-O-A-N-G-R-Y, Steve So Angry, just uh, uh, pulled over from my punk days, at gmail.com. That's beautiful. I, I really hope I hope you get some feedback from that because because it, it is important. You know, I uh, you know, and before we conclude, I wanted to ask your opinion about something. There's so much discussion about digital versus analog in terms of is there a difference? Is it warmer? Is it cold? You know, all these things people bring to the discussion. But I don't think there's a better person to ask than you um, because you know about some of the intricate details, you know, because we're in an entirely new technological universe where things are digital and digitized. And so you're able to sort of, you know, weigh in on it. Do you have any thoughts about that? Or um, uh, a- Absolutely. Okay. I, I, I always felt that, you know, people saying that digital is worse than analog, it's only because the digital has been 
treated in such a way that it removes any analog sound. Uh, like Red Book Audio, traditional CDs, those are all 44.1 kilohertz at 16 bit. At that fidelity, you can't get, you can't capture warmth from something like a record player. You need to have higher quality captures. You need 96 kilohertz. You need 192 kilohertz. Just, mm-hmm. you need more depth to it. If, you know, you could listen to, go, go to the Sarah Recording Legacy on archive.org, you know, it's linked in the YouTube stuff. Download the flax to one of those albums. Okay. If you put that on, on, on one speaker in a stereo and you sync it up with your version of the record on the other speaker in the stereo, I, you would be hard pressed to tell me that there is any difference between them because things that are preserved properly sound exactly like their source material. Okay. Now, a lot of modern recordings bypass all analog entirely, and that's just a different sound aesthetic. So if you, but so that, I can't say whether or not that sounds better. So you you you're, you're very judicious and diplomatic. You say, well, it's just a different style, um, but I guess it's equally valid, right? Because it's a it's your your it's still yeah. still recording something that somebody did in terms of audio. Yeah. In terms of uh, audio. a perfect example of arbitrary uh, fidelity would be something like uh, indie rock music. Uh, there's a French-Canadian band called Galaxy. Okay. And they do a lot of stuff with like vintage synthesizers and extremely fuzzy, distorted guitars. And their recordings, like I have their recordings both on, on digital and I have their stuff on vinyl. Yeah. And it, it sounds natural in both. It really just depends. At this point, it really is an aesthetic. If you want to have something clean and pristine, that, then that's what you're going for. It's, it, is now, it is no longer a what sounds superior. It is a what is your preference. Right. So, yeah, you, uh, thanks for... Now, I personally do love vinyl. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But what is it about vinyl? Now, that, you know, because vinyl... Uh, I mean, there's, actually, there's so many things about vinyl. I mean, I just had I had a, I had a, oh, it, a guest on my show that um, a musician who's doing compositions and recording in a studio, and they he said, "Yeah, I want to release some vinyl as well as the um, MP4. The MP4. He wants to do both. So, yeah, you know that's um, well. I, we're also living in a, a huge resurgence of vinyl because." Uh, You know, we were talking earlier about my, like, film compositions. I've been composing for very low-to-no-budget film, like B or even Z horror movies, and, like, made-for-Amazon kids movies that start talking animals. Oh, wow. And the the director I've been working with almost exclusively for the last decade said, hey, I would like to release a 10th anniversary vinyl. Are you okay with that? So I now have my own songs yeah. on vinyl. The fact that you can get custom pressings for as low as like, you know, one copy, but you're paying more, 10 or 50 or 100. It, it, it is wonderful to see yeah. that maybe it's not the same amount of care sent to the pressings, but vinyl is just, it's thriving now, yeah. again. Yeah, and I think it's going to be thriving more as, as time moves forward. I mean, I wish you, uh, I really want to thank you for your, first of all, your enthusiasm about the subject. Um, second of all, oh, absolutely. Your, second of all, your intelligence uh, in talking about it. Again, it's one thing to be able to do things like this. It's a it's a whole quantum leap beyond that to express it as articulately as you do and make to somebody like myself who doesn't know as much doesn't understand all the details. I'm really really appreciative of that. Um, is there any is there anything else before we we go that you want to say about sound or audio or about preservation or the underdog uh, as a, as a, as a closing thought? Um, yeah, sure, absolutely. So I know that we're very focused in general as a society, maybe as a generation or a bulk of generations. We're very focused on the here and now and the future. Yeah. We're focused on 
fixing problems that exist now. Yep. We're focused on trying to stop problems in the future. That should not be necessarily at the expense of looking backwards. So if you have any interest in any sort of history, whether it be just, you know, book history or actual media, whatever it is, mm -hmm. go out, do the research, be passionate about it. Passion is the most important thing because I can guarantee you that if you're passionate about something historical, mm -hmm. you're not going to be the only one and you should find other people that share that passion because this is how we preserve. You said earlier, you know, we've made leaps and bounds. We have more storage and data access than we've ever had before. Yeah. The only way that we can really preserve the history of our culture and society and, and just uh, of the human race is to make sure it is archived. That's beautiful. I, I can't thank you enough for putting it the way you just did. And that's a, I can't think of a, a better, a better guest for our podcast. Um, so I wish you a good fortune on your own podcast and, um, and I hope you get to some of those things you've been meaning to get to for, to preserve. Uh, so thank you. Mitch, this was an absolute pleasure. If you ever are interested in having me back on again to talk about maybe how, how the projects have come along in a few years or any other aspects, yep. please do not hesitate to, to, you know, look me up. I, I've had a wonderful time here and you've been a very gracious host. Thank you. Be safe. You as well. I don't like goodbyes. So I'll see you soon folks. Thank you. Thank you.